I was uh, sitting with a very good friend of mine uh, just yesterday morning. Uh, the occasion was not a happy one. Uh, we were planning the memorial service for his bride uh, who has recently gone to be with Jesus. Um, as uh, as uh, we kind of walk through these days, we're, we're, we're praying for each other, and I pray uh, especially for him to have the grace and strength that he needs. But we find opportunities for, for levity, and, and, uh, and yesterday we found it as we were kind of finishing up our, our process. Uh, we, we finished populating, you know, what would be the, the list of, of uh, the schedule of events. And, and he said, hey, I'd like a copy of that. And, uh, and then his kids who were there said, yeah, we'd like a copy as well. And I remember just like 15, 20 years ago, this would have been an ordeal. Does anybody remember those days? Like if someone had wanted a copy of anything that you had on your computer or, uh, you know, or a, a notepad, there would have been you know, Xerox machines and maybe printers and all these kinds of things. You would have plugged stuff in. But these days, we live in a golden age, right? Now, the funny part is, is that we couldn't make the technology, which was readily available to us through texting and emails and even airdrops. We couldn't make it work initially, but eventually we got it figured out. There's this little tab on my iPad that I preach from here, which is almost out of juice. That's bad. Anyway, uh, <laughs> just noticed that. Anyway, uh, uh, this little tab, uh, it, it basically senses their phones. How great is that? Like your phones are sensing each other right now. Some of you are pirating each other's Wi-Fi right now. It's awesome. You're using their HubSpot, and some people don't even know. Anyway, people are like, what? But I just punched on the buttons that had these people's names on it, and the document that was on my device went to theirs just like that. We have made some advances as a culture, agreed? Like, th things are rapidly changing, now more so than ever. Stuff that used to be cutting edge is obsolete in almost no time at all. But just 100 years ago, can we appreciate how far we've come? You know what the number one cause of death in, Amer in, a death in America was 100 years ago? The flu. Uh, those diseases that we could contract but through infections or, or, or virally, those were the things that killed people. In 1919, there was a huge flu epidemic in America. It killed more people than anything else that year. Back in uh, 1915, uh, 100 plus years ago, the expected age uh, or life expectancy of a male was 48 years. Anybody beating the curve? I am right now. Feeling strong. Ladies, you had 54 because you're just better than us, okay? Uh, but today, those numbers have increased for fellows to be 79 years. 83 for you ladies. We're living longer. Because things have gotten better. We know more. We've advanced technology. Don't even get me started. We could just spend hours on that. Actually, I brought this in. This is called a phone. Do you remember these? <laughs> this is the one that sits on my desk on a regular basis. I brought it out here because it's about as good a use to me not plugged in as it is plugged in. I, I think I took 10 calls on this phone last year total. I just don't use it. And it's not because I don't appreciate it. It's a great, you know, piece of machinery. But um, I text, I email. If I need someone in our in our, in our staff, I, I open my door and yell. I mean, that's kind of the intercom system. Um, nicely, but uh, that's how I get things done. Uh, uh, we've even surpassed one of the greatest inventions of all or, or, or improved on it to the point that we don't even use the one that's plugged into our walls anymore. Travel, isn't it amazing that you can get on a plane and be somewhere in three hours that 100 years ago would take you three weeks? I mean, it's just crazy, the stuff that we can do. 
We gather every week and we talk about something, uh, directly or indirectly, that man's advances will never solve. An issue that we will never overcome, no matter how hard we try on our own. We talk about the spiritual side of things. And no level of human ingenuity will ever solve the problem of sin. In fact, I, I would say this, our, our, our advancements technologically and otherwise have made it easier for us to sin. Like uh, we, we take these great things, these great, you know, uh, steps forward and, and uh, because our hearts are in and of themselves uh, wicked against God and, and set against each other, we use our advances uh, to find new ways to sin. We troll each other on social media. We, we make a divided country even more divided by blasting each other with our opinions protected by the keyboard and the screen in front of us. Uh, the, the, the youth culture of our day is experiencing anxiety in, in numbers that have never, ever uh, been seen. And most of our psychiatrists attribute it to the fact that, that our kids are growing up staring at screens, looking at um, lives that they wish they had and sensing that they're missing out. Now, we are certainly more efficient and proficient than we've ever been, but we, we use all of these advances to uh, propagate all kinds of evil. You know, you can go online and figure out how to build a bomb, join a terrorist cell. Pornography, don't even get me started. In one click, you can uh, view <laughs> more horrible stuff than, than anybody has viewed in, uh, in, in the days that I grew up. I mean, you had, if you wanted to, not that I did, but if you wanted to see <laughs> pornography as a kid, I mean, you had to effort that thing, right? Uh, I heard. Got to watch what you say up here. But God's word is clear. All of our advances will never advance us to a point where we don't need them, where we aren't rely reliant on them. He, he says in his word over and over again that we will um, stay trapped in our sin apart from his help. Romans tells us that we fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, all will sin and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this total depravity that we talk about and refer to, this fact that all of mankind is, is, is trapped in sin and unable to overcome it, is, is something that is not accepted in a lot of the world's religions. A lot of the world's religions are built around the fact that I can overcome my sin. I can overcome whatever is separating me from God and, and, and build the bridge myself. In fact, when Jesus arrives on the scene, he, he arrives in Israel, and the Jewish religion is the religion of, of his culture, and, and, and they basically believe this. They believe if they keep all the rules that they'll somehow um, deserve uh, atonement, that, that God will accept them based on their obedience. Lots of people even have this today. They're, they're not religious at all, but if they are challenged with the idea of God and, and, and even, you know, uh, assent to his existence of, in some way, we'll say, okay, do you, do you think there's sin in the world? Do you think there's wrong? Yes, there's wrong. Do you think a perfect God will accept your wrongs? No, he won't. But, and then they throw this in, I'm a good person. I mean, for grading on the scale here, I'm way better than my neighbor. Let me introduce you to him. His name's Tony, and he's, woo, right? But, but I'm, I'm way better than Tony, and so... I'm sure, this is their assumption, I'm sure God will take me. I'm good. They're banking on their behavior. But Jesus comes into his day and we should come into our day and we should make sure that people understand that that's just not the case. J 
Jesus sits down with a bunch of his friends on the side of a hill and he starts teaching them. And he gets just very few lines into his first, one of his first sermons, his big one called Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey guys, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that, this is Matthew 5 verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the Jewish faith, there were none better at keeping the rules than the scribes and the Pharisees. They knew the rules. They had studied more than anybody else. They were usually uh, of, of the 1%. They had you know, the means by which they could keep all the rules financially and, and, and you know, in their calendars. They could squeeze it in because they weren't doing other things. They, they, they made it their life's mission to go above and beyond. It tells us later in the story of Jesus that they, they tithe, not just their money, but their spices. They would go to their spice rack and they would take a tenth of their mint and their dill and they would give that. I mean, we're talking hyper law obeyers. But Jesus stands in front of this crowd and he says to all these people who are mostly not Pharisees and certainly aspired to be like the Pharisees, and he says, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds the varsity team, you're not getting into heaven. Now, he wasn't telling them that so that they could have that incredible weight and burden of, oh, i got to do better than the best. I can't, I can't do that. He was trying to explain to them, you, you're not going to be able to do better than the best. In essence, it's not about what you can do. I'm not preaching that gospel that your efforts will save you. Because Jesus came to make very clear to us that we cannot save ourselves. Only God can God, through his son, has made the way for you and I to be saved from our sin. If you're here this morning and you haven't understood that, listen, I'm glad you came, but you coming to church doesn't make you one tick closer to a holy God. It's a great thing to do, but it doesn't justify you. But it is an opportunity for you to hear how you can be justified. It's not by your works, it's by your faith. Jesus preached this often. In fact, a young guy comes up to him in Matthew 19. Uh, he's a rich young ruler, the Bible describes him as being. Uh, he's got money and means. Um, he, he's certainly been steeped in the law. And so he comes up to Jesus and he says to Jesus, hey, what do I got to do to be saved? And Jesus says, standard answer. He gives the pat answer of the Jewish you know, uh, religion. He says, keep all the laws and commandments. Do, do everything that you're supposed to do. And what's the kid say? Done it. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. He's uh, getting ready to, you know, go tell everybody that this, this new hot shot Messiah teacher, you know, rabbi, uh, has conferred righteousness upon him. And Jesus says, oh, and by the way, I need you to go sell everything you got and follow me. And the story takes a turn there because the kid who was all shoulders back and feeling pretty good went shoulders down. And he was like, oh, man. That's way more than I thought. Jesus tells this story after that. He says, you know, it's so hard for rich people to make it into the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And he wasn't just talking about money. A lot of times people think that it's just money. If you have too much money, you can't go to heaven. That's not what it's saying at all. When he says rich there, he's saying, you know, it's really hard for those who think that they're self-sufficient to find the kingdom. It's really hard for those who think that they got the answers, that they can do this themselves to find the kingdom because they've missed the central message of my gospel. Man can't save themselves, only God can. 
The disciples are freaking out. <laughs> so they come to Jesus as they often would. What did you mean by that? Look at what it says in verse 25 of Matthew 19. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they said to Jesus, who then can be saved? I mean, if this guy, this rich young ruler who's kept all the rules can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus says it one more time. Jesus says, listen, with man, salvation, this, is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus dies for our sins, resurrects to give us new life. He goes to prepare a place for us and in his stead is the early church and Paul became one of the apostles, the leaders of the early church and he took the mantle of this message. He says, you guys gotta remember, it, it's, it's gonna be so easy for you to slide into doing for yourselves, seeing yourself as your solution. But you gotta remember, it's not our works that save us. It's not our works and our efforts that bring us the life God hopes for us. It's our faith. He told the Ephesians familiar verses, it's by grace that you are saved. It's not of your own doing, it's a gift that comes from God. It's not a result of your work so that you and I can't boast that we did this. I for one am grateful to know that God saves and I can't. It takes a huge load off. Doesn't mean that I could just go live however I want, that's not what I'm preaching. But when it comes to me being connected with God, it's not up to me entirely or, or initially at all for that connection to be made. God draws me in. God sends his solution. It's his son. Yet for all the hammering of this point, for all my preaching of it, I am still, probably like you, so susceptible to trying to live my life according to my ways and my plans. I am a sucker for self-sufficiency. I just, I mean, when, when the Bible talks about the new man and the old man, that old man just loves to do it himself. I feel like I'm in the tug of war between the two a lot. I feel like I'm able to make things happen apart from the blessing and direction of God. And I want to forge a path of my own making because I think I know best. It even comes out in how I pray sometimes. Anybody ever prayed this prayer? Lord, here's my plans. Bless them. Anybody ever done that? I mean, maybe not in those exact words, but it's, it's, it's typically what we do. Hey, God, woke up this morning. Here's what I thought. Bless it. I was watching a Netflix show. It wasn't even a Christian one. It was just a cop drama. And they had a scene in a church, and I just wasn't ready to get something from a Netflix cop drama that I would use in a sermon, but here it comes. Because <laughs> in this scene in the church, the actor who was playing the pastor says, hey, man, when it comes to life, don't pray this prayer, Lord, bless my plans. Instead, pray, Lord, show me your plans and make me a blessing to you in them. That's the prayer of a follower. That's a prayer of someone who sees his sufficiency in his Savior and not in himself. Some of you are like, uh, we're going to get to Moses? I, I think we were studying Exodus. Yeah, let's go there. Because I said all that to kind of help us shine a light on some of the things that are happening in the account of Moses' life that we're reading today. Moses finds himself in a tight spot 
He's a good man. He's a brilliant, compassionate man who seeks to come to the aid of his countrymen. Yet, as we're going to see, his actions, while noble and honorable and life-saving, ultimately bring about some pretty negative results in his life. And if there's anything uh, that we could say about his choices here, perhaps he steps outside of what God's best would be for him and, and chooses his own plan. What I hope for us to gain today is, is this, that life is lived best when we trust God and his saving and move according to his plan and his timing and not our own. Will you stand with me? We're going to read some verses in Exodus today. I know you got comfortable and you're all ready to sleep or something, but uh, could you just stand? Here we go. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Read them with me like you mean it. Everybody ready? One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? The, the Egyptian. And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Have a seat. May God bless the reading of his word. A couple of things that we learn about Moses from this text and from other texts that kind of surround it. It's so great. You, a lot of times when you're reading your Bible, you can read other parts of your Bible to understand the part that you're reading. And the New Testament has a lot to, to say, to comment on when it comes to this particular account of Scripture. Uh, from all of them, we learn this, that Moses was an extraordinary man. I mean, absolutely. Uh, amongst the men who make the story, amongst the men who shape the story of God's redemption, Moses is a key player. He's extraordinary. His story is extraordinary. If you were here last week, he was a baby in a basket floating in a river. And a princess of the land that he lived in as a slave yanked him out of the water and made her one of her own. Before that, she, she gave this little baby back to his mom so that she could nurse him. It's, I mean, Moses' story is crazy incredible from the beginning to the end. He's used of God. He is extraordinary as the Bible describes him. In Acts chapter 7, a guy named Stephen's given a sermon uh, in this period of Israel's history. The, the church has been started, and, and so uh, he's going to give a sermon that ultimately ends in his martyrdom. Uh, but he talks, talks about Moses, and in it he tells us that Moses, uh, Acts 7, 22, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Moses was smart. Moses was articulate. And Moses was active. He, he was the, the age's equivalent of like an Ivy Leaguer who had, been grown, he had grown up in privilege, grown up in the palace. He had been given every opportunity and he had made the most of it. He had become something. He wasn't just willing to, to rest on his laurels. He was voted most likely to succeed in his high school yearbook. That's not in the Bible, I just made that up. But he wasn't this typical elitist who was self-absorbed as a child of privilege. He was... Not just smart and articulate and capable, but he, but he was compassionate. 
And he was loyal to his people. Picking up what we read it in Exodus chapter 2, it says one day when Moses had grown up, we know that to be um, actually the age of 40 in Acts, the same Acts 7 that I was just reading from. It says that Moses was about 40 years old when these things happened. So Moses is a 40-year-old, and and it says that he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Uh, Twice there, the writer Moses himself, as he's writing Exodus, uh, says that Moses went out to his people, and and then he saw one of them being uh, beaten, one of his people. He says it twice, his people, his people. He does that for emphasis. He's trying to make us very clear to the fact that Moses has chosen who he's from. He grew up Egyptian, but... But at this time in his life, he's, he's seeing himself as one of the Jews, this slave race that lived in Egypt. It says that he went out. That's the Hebrew word yatza. Everybody say yatza. It's what you get when all the dice match, yatza. Stupid. It's been stupid every time I've said it, but I keep saying it. Anyway, uh, this word doesn't mean just simply like leaving a room or walking out of a of a, of a set area into another, it, it's more emphatic. Like it's the same word, yatza, that's described or used to describe the, the exodus itself. It says later in the story that the children of Israel, Israel left Egypt, the yatza, Egypt. Lots of scholars see this choice of word as significant because they see it as Moses making this choice to leave all that he had known as a, as a privileged son of the Egyptian pharaoh and to, to go to his people. It says next that he looked on their burdens. This word looked uh, is the Hebrew word yara, say yara. Yeah, I don't have a joke for that one. But uh, yara is more than just kind of scan or to, to, to have a glance at. Yara is this, this uh, looking with feeling. He saw their burdens and it, it welled up inside of him, a compassion. It's the same thing that maybe you feel late at night when you see the dog adoption commercials come on with that Sarah McLaughlin song, right? In the eyes of an angel. And you're like all of a sudden dialing and I want a dog. Anyway, um, this is the same kind of sense of this word. He, he, he didn't just look at his people. He, he looked at them and he, he cared deeply. It says later in another part of scripture that um, uh, this leaving and this looking uh, led Moses to, to becoming someone else. He, he, he departed from his path and, and chose to honor God as the leader of, of those that he would uh, uh, take out of Egypt. In Hebrews chapter 11, a, a chapter in our Bibles that describes many uh, people of the Old Testament who lived by faith, it says in verse 24 that by faith... Moses, when he was grown up, uh, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses was extraordinary, smart, articulate, active, compassionate, loyal to his people, giving up everything. How about you? Would you do that? If you're living in the palace... Is your heart stirred to the point that you leave all of those comforts behind and become the leader and defender of a slave race? That's what Moses did. He did that because not only was he smart and articulate, not only was he compassionate and loyal, he was a doer. 
He was a man of action and a defender of the oppressed. Again, back to what Stephen says in Acts 7. He says that when, when Moses was 40 years old, verse 23, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Moses never met uh, an author by the name of Edmund Burke. He was an Irish writer in the 18th century, but uh, he would agree with one of the things that Edmund Burke said. Edmund Burke is famous for this quote. He said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Yeah, Eddie Burke said it first. But Moses lived it because as Moses walked by this murder that was taking place, this beating, this vicious, violent beating, he was the one who said, that's it. I can't just walk past this anymore. I've got to do something. I've got to do for this one what I would, in my heart, want to do for every Jewish slave. I want to provide for him and protect him. It's a great axiom to live, for, uh, live by in life. Like, we are all finite. We're not able to fix everything, right? But in our limited capacities, God's giving us opportunities over and over again to be a part of, of his redemptive work in the life of someone. And so what we would do for everyone, take the time to do for someone. What we would hope to rectify in everyone's life, if God gives you the opportunity, make a difference and rectify it in an individual's life that you come across. That's what Moses did. And up to this point, everything's arrows pointed up. He's excelled in all the opportunities he was given. He's compassionate and loyal. He's active to the point that he's going to get involved. He's, he's doing these incredible things. But then this next verse comes. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 12, it says this. He, he saw this beating going down, and, and it says that he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. We had some really great discussion with some of the other pastors on our staff on Tuesday morning about what this verse means, because there's a couple different ways you can take it. Uh, the one way you could take it is that Moses, this extraordinary guy, was out walking around, and he, he saw this, this beating going down, and he, he looked around to see if there would be anybody who would intercede, and seeing no one else who would be able to come to this guy's rescue, he said, well, that's it, I'm in. He strikes down the Egyptian slave driver and, and then hides him in the sand. Now, another way you can take it is that Moses walks around, compassionate, loving uh, for his people, and, and he sees this beating going down. And it wells up in him this, this, this righteous anger, this, this desire to be a defender. And so looking to see if anybody would see what he was about to do, he went to this Egyptian, interceded on the slave's behalf, and then hit him in the sand. The, the, the people in this camp, they, they point to the hiding. Because if, if he was doing it and he wasn't ashamed of it and he, he didn't think it was wrong, why didn't he just leave the guy out there and call the authorities and say, hey man, I stepped in. This guy was going berserko on this slave. I had to do something. No, he, the, the people from this camp think that the hiding is kind of the, the determiner of the interpretation. He, he didn't want anybody to find out. And that's why he hit him in the sand. I can see it both ways. Certainly Moses, uh, I think, uh, acted altruistically. He wanted to do the right thing and did what he did with a clear conscience. Now, maybe he did it from anger, but regardless, 
things in the story move forward from there. And we start to see that even as, as, as extraordinary as Moses is, he was just like you and me. He had flaws. And in his attempts to um, wrestle the plan from the hands of his God, to, to go in a direction that he saw fit, uh, perhaps he did things outside of what God intended, and it led to the results he received. Because he, uh, Moses was an ordinary man. I think, has that appeared on the screen yet? It will. There it is. Told you. He was fallible. One of, the, one of the ways that Moses was fallible is that he was impetuous. Is anybody in here impetuous? Don't react too quickly. Just, no. Anybody here suffer from that? Anybody here guilty of building the airplane while you're flying? You know, we'll get going, see how this works out. Hopefully the landing gear will be in place when it's time to come down. I think you could say that about Moses in this one act. I don't think he woke up that morning thinking, hey, I'm going to ace me a slave trader. I'm on the hunt. No, he just saw this go down and, and he reacted. He, he did what he thought best. It ended up with him hiding the carcass, the body in the sand. I don't know about you, but when I, uh, when I hide something, I usually have some sense that maybe that wasn't right. Anybody ever done that? Right? Like if I'm, if I'm maybe even on the edges of sin, I'm, I'm kind of skulking around. Like I remember stealing cookies uh, that I knew I wasn't supposed to have before dinner. You know, mom would make the cookies that I still make today, and uh, they're my favorite things. I can't not eat them. I, I, I'm still trying. I'm trying to figure that out, but I can't not eat them. So she would tell seven-year-old Mark, don't go in there where the cookies are cooling on the uh, baking racks and have one. And it never occurred to me that she counted them. There weren't that many. <laughs> but I would wait till she was off in the laundry room switching a load or something like that, and I would... And think I'd get away with it. And what's with all the tiptoeing around? I knew it was wrong. I wanted to hide from what was wrong. Remember what uh, happened in the garden when sin entered in the world? Lots of cover-ups, first with fig leaves, right? And then hiding from the God who created everything. Nice play, Adam and Eve. That was going to work. I, I read a commentator, and I kind of agree with him on this text. He, uh, his name is P.J. Riken, and, and he, he sees that what Moses did uh, was wrong. He, he says it was wrong because, first of all, it was unnecessary. Moses certainly could have protected the slave without resorting to kill the slave driver. Uh, perhaps it was wrong because it was not Moses' uh, Moses's place to do what he did. It was an abuse of his power. He was still a private individual and not an officer of the state at least as far as we know, uh, administering some kind of solemn justice. Instead of making himself a judge and a jury and an executioner all in one, uh, he should have worked within the system. Riken goes on and he says, it was probably wrong because it was not God's will, at least from what we can tell, because God had not instructed Moses to do this, at least from the record. This brought up other characters in the scriptures. Like I just got done studying uh, First and Second Samuel with our life group last year, and I, I marveled at the differences between the first two kings of Israel in that period of Israel's history. They were named Saul and David, and Saul was this king that the people had clamored for, and God gave him to him. And, and uh, Saul had moments, high moments of of connection with God and honor of God, and 
But if he had one problem, it was that he was impetuous. He would get out in front of God and go and do things without the blessing of God or the blessing of his prophet Samuel. And ultimately what <laughs> led to his downfall is that he uh, performed a sacrifice that was meant for Samuel alone to bring uh, in, in beha- on behalf of Israel and its army and because he wanted to take advantage of the, the tactical advantages or, or, or the you know, edges that his army would have. Uh, he did the sacrifice himself, and Samuel got there and was like, Saul, what have you done? And Saul's like, ah, oh, it's no big deal. You weren't here. We, we couldn't wait for you any longer, so I just did it myself. And Samuel says to Saul, he says, Saul, that's it. God's done with you. You and your line have lost the throne, all because of an impetuous move. Moses, later in his life, number 17, he's almost out of the promised land. He's seen all, you know, spoiler alert, but he's seen all kinds of miracles. God has brought food to the Israelites in the desert. He's brought water to the Israelites in the desert. They're thirsty again, and God says, okay, we're going to tap the rock one more time. Except he says, don't tap the rock. He says, speak to the rock. And Moses says, well, I've been here, done this. Last time I did it, I used the stick. And so he steps outside of what God had directed, staps the, taps the rock. And if you know the story, Moses doesn't get to go to the promised land because he taps the rock. Gets a little bit ahead of God. And because it wasn't God's will and it wasn't God's way, it was counted against him. We, we're all guilty of this. I mean, remember Peter in the garden? So Peter, and we're about to take communion here. Um, communion started at the, the Last Supper, the Seder feast of Passover before Jesus is crucified. And Jesus takes his disciples out into the Garden of the Gethsemane and they're praying. Anybody know the story, right? And, and, and they're just hanging out. And before they leave, Peter straps on. He puts a blade in his belt. He's packing. Just in case, never know. And so they're out there, and Pete keeps falling asleep while they're praying, and Jesus has stuff to say about that. But, but then Judas shows up, and, and just like you know, Jesus predicted, he's going to betray him, so he kisses him on the cheek, and these soldiers who were with Judas um, you know, start to take Jesus into custody, and Pete concocts a plan. What's his plan? Knife out, swing, swing, wildly. He hits one of the soldiers in the ear. <laughs> Slices it off. And then I picture him yelling, run, Jesus, my plan is in effect, run. And he's over there swinging as the soldiers are surrounding him, subduing him. Jesus is over by the guy who's had an ear cut off. And he's taking the ear and he's picking it up and he's popping it back in place. And he's like, Pete, 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 Pete. When are we going to figure this out? It's not about you and your plans. It's not about you and what you think is right. It's about me. I've been telling you that all that is happening has to happen. It's my Father's will. Quit standing in the way. Moses could be a a bit presumptuous in his impetuosity or impetuousness, whatever that word is. He goes out the next day, it tells us in Exodus 2, and he sees two Hebrews struggling together. Uh, Moses was like a bouncer. He kept breaking up fights. And he says to the guy who started the fight, why do you strike your companion? And the guy who started the fight said, well, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Okay, first of all, he was a prince. 
Yeah, I think that's what they called the movie, right? <laughs> prince of Egypt? Yeah, he was a prince, but these Jewish slaves says, well, you're no prince of ours. You're no judge of ours. He says, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Apparently the guy whose life had been saved by this guy Moses the day before went back into town and told the others. Because Moses had made sure that no one was looking. But apparently, you know, blabbymouth shared the news. And it's interesting. The reaction that the other slaves had was not, yay, Moses is our savior. It was, we're not hitching our wagon to you. You're, you're a son of the Pharaoh's daughter. You're, you're one of them. You think just because you do it once, we're going to fall in line? It's just not how it's going to work. It tells us in Stephen's account, uh, Acts 7.25, that Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not. I would submit to you, I don't think they understood because it wasn't time. Because Moses was operating outside God's appointed plan. Bad things can happen when we presume. We could totally miss, even though we think we're nailing it. Like, uh, I remember as a young husband, I, uh, I came home on Eleanor's, one of Eleanor's birthdays, and uh, I, I gave her her birthday gift. It was a mixer. Uh, a nice one. Like, way better than the $15 one we got for our wedding. I mean, this, this thing had settings, you know, and it just on and off. It had, like, speeds, and it was like 40 bucks. I thought it was really... Uh, but she, she made very clear that, honey, we will not be getting me appliances on my birthday. Okay, cool. Wish I had known, right? You want to know, Eleanor's birthday is about six days before Christmas, and you want to know, every uh, November, December, when Eleanor starts talking about that, like, I'll even drop little hints. Hey, man, you know, what, what would you like for man? Hey, hey wife, uh, what would you like to have for your birthday or Christmas? And she'll, we'll just be having a meal, and she'll say something, and I will immediately bring out my phone and write down whatever she says. And she'll get, you know, kind of, hey, you're not supposed to be on your phone when you're talking to me. You're not paying attention to me. I was like, oh, yes, I am. I'm paying very good attention. Because I want to hear your wishes, your desires, and, and be able to provide them. And so as we close today, let that be our mission in life. That we would hear God's wishes and God's desires and be in step with them. Not just bringing him what we think he wants, what, we think he, what we think will be best for him. But being available to him. Not saying, God, here's my plan, bless it. But God, what's your plan? Make me a blessing in it. A guy I really respect, a preacher named Matt Chandler, whose sermon I borrowed from pretty liberally for this morning, uh, says this about people. He says there's two kinds of people. He says there's those who trust God, and there are those who are trying to be God. And I'm, I'm like you. I'm sitting there thinking, do I believe that? Is that true? And as I've thought about it, I, I think it is true. And I think, in fact, we can be both at the same time, because here, we, we've seen this before. I think all of us live life like this. God, I trust you with all of this. I'll worship you with all of this. This is the part of my life I'm going to give to you. But in these parts, I'm God. In these, you're God. 
in this, I'm God. But here's the deal. There's only one God. It's God. And later on in the story of Moses, he's going to write that down on some tablets. He's going to say, hey, listen, here's what I need from you. Don't have any other gods. Don't worship any kind of idols. I'm God. There's no other gods, and you're not God. I'm God. Trust me. Follow me. I'll make your path straight. I think that's embedded in the story of the the communion uh, sacrament that we celebrate together. Jesus uh, stands up at this dinner that had normally been uh, a celebration of the Passover meal or the Passover event in in, in Exodus, which we'll get to later. And uh, he says, hey guys, I'm gonna kinda change what these emblems have always meant. Uh, This bread from now on, it's gonna represent my body which is broken for you. And this cup from now on, it's gonna represent my blood which is shed for you. It's a new covenant, It's, it's a new deal. But as always, it's a a covenant that represents the truth that you cannot save yourself. You need a savior. And only God can do that. As you take this remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, uh, reflect on that and appreciate who Jesus is and what he's done. But beyond that, recognize your insufficiency as a human being to rectify the sin issue that you and I have. And praise God for his son who does. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, thanks so much for a chance to, to you know, learn some more of your word and to, to wrestle with its meaning. Uh, God, certainly uh, all of us, Uh, from time to time are guilty of taking the reins, of steering the car, of doing uh, what we want over what you want. Uh, Sometimes it's blatant, it's sinful, it's wrong, it's it's immoral and, and, and obvious. And in other times, God, it seems right, it looks good, but it's just not uh, your plan, your desire, your timing. And, and what we want, God, is to just stay humble and submitted to your will, to follow as you lead in your time to you, where you want us to go. And so as we remember your son and, and him crucified, his sacrifice and, and his offering of himself for our sake, may we be mindful of the fact that that was necessary because we cannot do for ourselves. But Jesus can, he did, he does, he will. Amen and amen.